Brett Fish, and you're listening to Out of the Fishbowl. Now, with this episode, I want to start with a bit of a trigger warning for women that this episode is for and about men, and that certainly doesn't mean that you can't listen in. And in fact, if you have any ideas or thoughts, I would love to hear them. But this is a message that that I really have just felt in my heart needs to get out to men. And at the same time, realizing that gender itself is a complicated conversation in 2022. But I think that much of this should still resonate in terms of our traditional kind of understandings and kind of the story of men through the ages. Now, in America in 2022, there have already been more than 314 mass shootings. Now, a mass shooting is determined by being four or more victims that are shot at or injured or killed, may include the shooter. But but just let's sit with that for a moment. 314 mass shootings this year. And to put it into a bit of better context, there have been 243 days this year so far on the day of recording. 243 days, 314 mass shootings. So what is that? That's 57, 67, 71 more mass shootings. Then there have been days of the year. Now, here's the thing. America doesn't have a mass shooting problem. 98% 98% of the shooters were male. Can you, can you remember, have you ever heard a news bulletin where there was a mass shooter and the shooter was female? I don't think I've ever heard that. But the stats, 98% of shooters were male. America has a man problem. In South Africa, bringing it a little closer to home, in the first three months of the year, 13,799, so almost 14,000 sexual offenses were reported. Now, now focus on those words, were reported. 14,000 sexual offenses were reported, which means how many were not reported. So 14,000 is, is the small number. And of those 10,818, almost 11,000 were cases of rape. In the first three months of the year. South Africa does not have a gender-based violence problem. It has a man problem. And sure, there are going to be people that say women can rape too. Women can perform gender-based violence too. And that is true. And when it happens, it is as serious. It needs to be dealt with. But overwhelmingly, in almost all of the cases, it is men doing these things with the mass shootings, with the sexual offenses, the world has a man problem. And so I googled definition of a real man, and this is the first thing that came up. A man who fulfills traditional expectations of masculinity in his behavior, attitudes, or appearance. A virile or masculine man. And so I googled virile, it said strength, energy, and strong sex drive. I googled masculine, it said handsome and robust, macho, manly, red-blooded, laddish, muscular. And I think so much of the problem lies in the definition or the understanding of what it means to be a man. And so we're going to have to look at that as we wrestle with some of these man things that I'm going to talk about today. 
And a quote that I found, which I think is helpful to get us started on this journey of learning and probably more importantly, unlearning what it means to be a man is from Lavi Ajayi. And it goes like this, being a good man is something you do, not something you are. Being a good man, in inverted commas, is something you do, not something you are. It's an action. It's something that's lived out. It's something that is evidenced. Not who you think you are, not who your reputation is, not who, how you want people to see you, but, but who, who you are, what actually happens, how you live it out. And so we're going to dive right into this in an episode that I like to call... Episode 3. It's time to man up. So here's the thing. I was bullied as a kid. I was bullied as a high school drama student. I was bullied as a youth pastor. But if you'd asked me even a couple of years ago if I was ever bullied, then I think I would have said no. And it's only really as I've been working in justice spaces and with young people and women and trying to understand how damaging we are to women that I was able to look back and kind of name something that I had normalized or okayed. That that didn't – I never named it as bullying growing up. I never looked back on my life and thought, yo, I was bullied as a kid. But when I look back at a couple of incidents, like that is clearly what was happening. So when I was growing up in Joburg, I remember clearly my sister's boyfriend and his best friend at the time. There were moments where they would hurt me. They'd ridicule me. They'd be physical – Stuff going on, it would always be kind of in in the name of fun. So it would be like a friendly punch or just things that were kind of normalized and okayed. But I remember being embarrassed or humiliated or physically hurt on occasion. But it was always like explained to me in my own head in a sense. There was this thing of, no, that's just what happens. You're trying to fit in. Um, you're trying to be cool. I was in primary school. They would have been kind of mid-high school. So older guys, you're trying to... I was trying to fit in with them. I wanted them to like me. And, and so just being roughhoused or whatever kind of language we put it around it. But I remember I was physically hurt and I was emotionally made to feel less than. But the whole time kind of normalized it and okayed it, which is why I never would have answered, yeah, I was bullied as a kid. But when I look back, that is clearly what was happening. I remember when I was in matric and this one doesn't feel as kind of strong as the other two. But again, like anytime I hear myself minimizing it, I want to be aware of what's going on. But um, we were in drama class and some of the guys who were the more kind of jock guys, the more physically muscular, less academic, if I can put it that way. Um, there were a bunch of them. We had to make it. We had to do a project. We had to make a play. And a bunch of them came to me. And I remember them saying that they would beat me up if I didn't write a play for them. And when I remember back, I don't remember being fearful that they were actually going to beat me up. So it didn't feel like that sense of a threat. But there was this pressure that I needed to do this thing. And I couldn't be in a group with people that I wanted to do a play with. And I needed to write something for them. And and there was a sense that I, I guess I kind of got my own back in that situation because I ended up finding a comedic play online and and rehashing it and rewriting it and and did such a bad job that they – 
they got highly kind of embarrassed and it was awful. And I don't remember any kind of repercussions to that. It was it kind of felt like a Disney movie turnaround. But so that one kind of ended okay. But but that sense of like being in a place where there was a physical kind of verbalized threat of if you don't do this, you're going to be in trouble. And then probably the worst one was as a youth pastor in a church and a group of us went with with the pastor on this mission to another country and we were going to go and work with some people there. And on the way, we spent a couple of days camping at this campsite and this pastor had two young kids. And I remember the one night there were five or six of us playing a game of cards. I think it was around the table and it was late at night at a campsite and having a lot of fun. And, and the pastor guy came out with a baseball bat and basically threatened violence upon us because we were keeping his kids awake or something like that. And, and again, it's one of those things where you look back and you don't like at any moment think that the pastor is going to beat you up with a baseball bat. But, but I definitely know that I felt intimidated in that moment. And I definitely know that I guess there was a sense of embarrassment and a sense of like, this is not okay. But because of the authority that he had and because he was the one running things, like it never felt like an extreme case of this really is not okay. Like it's not okay to threaten a bunch of students with a baseball bat. Like it's, that is not okay outside of the church. And here you've got a religious leader and there's authority and there's economics, I guess, of him running the mission trip and all that kind of thing. And looking back on that incident, it just, it just really disturbs me that for him, he thought it was okay to grab grab an item of physical violence and use it visually to, to enforce the threat of you better let my kids go to sleep. And so those are just three incidents that come to mind. And the fact that 30, 40 years later, they are still with me. I can still see them playing out. I can still see myself in my, in my role or in my space in those moments shows that, that these were things that left a deep imprint on me. And and when I say they weren't as serious as what other people go through, I'm not trying to minimize them in any way. But people do go through a lot worse than that. Actual bullying, actual physical violence and all those kind of things. But but for me, those stories kind of raise up this concept of of real men. What What is a real man? And it, it kind of feels like the caveman mindset, this thing of establishing dominance, club the woman and head back to the cave words like power or authority or kind of an unearned respect like the man and in a south african context and in certain kind of community contexts that idea of the man like we just have to say that and and many of us resonate with what it means and what the expectation is and and what weight that carries and then as as somebody who is or tries to be a follower of Jesus, there's, there's another kind of problematic aspect for me as well in all of this, in that we've normalized this in the church spaces as well, spaces that are, are meant to be different, meant to be set apart, meant to be better in some ways or whatever, like meant to be focused on love. There are some ways in which we have cultivated and backed up and built up this image of real men or what a man should be. I think of a book that was really popular when I was young called Mild at Heart, or at least the book was called Wild at Heart, but I've always referred to it as Mild at Heart by a guy called John Eldritch. And I read the book. It was one of those popular books that everyone was reading and loved, and it was the best thing ever. And I read it, and I absolutely hated it. It lined my bin, basically. 
And the one story that I remember in particular, John was talking about his, his son, and his son was doing this rock climbing thing. And they were out, I think, probably also camping. His son was trying to climb this rock face. And there was this moment of how he was describing the story that seemed to indicate that if his son gave up or didn't manage to to finish doing this climb that was obviously really scary for him, it was, it was really difficult, it looked like he wasn't going to make it. If he had failed and not been able to do it, then he wasn't a man. And in the story, the kid does make it. And so there's this celebration of who he is because he found whether it was God's purpose for his life or whatever it was. But there's this celebration because there was this obstacle and he overcame it and he was a real man. And I sat there reading the book thinking, like, how traumatized or what is the trajectory of this little boy if he hadn't made, if he hadn't made it? If he hadn't finished the climb, if he hadn't overcome the obstacle, if he'd started crying or whatever, there was the sense of the unspoken, this is what a man is, or spoken, actually, written about. And, and anything else is less than, it's not quite there. We think of another name that, that the churchgoers might know, someone like Mark Driscoll, who had, had strong, powerful theology around the strength of a man and the man being dominant and the, the rule of the household. And, and so many Christian male speakers and writers and pastors helped to create or add to this image of, of what a man looks like. And, and there was the sense of the pastor being the man of power for the hour. Now, I've probably spoken before about no Bob. No Bob is my stuffed yellow and white dolphin. And about 20 years ago, I started doing a lot of youth speaking. I was invited to speak at camps and youth groups and churches. And, and one of the things that I did, and I remember it specifically for summer camp, which was a camp of a thousand young people, two camps, back to back, a thousand young people each in the middle of Kimberley. And I, as a speaker, intentionally tried to challenge or circumvent this idea that the man at the front that was delivering the word of God, because it was typically a man, that that person was somebody to be revered or praised or put on a pedestal. And so No Bob, this little stuffed dolphin that I had, became a kind of gimmick for me and a mascot. And I used to introduce him when I did my talks. And it was like, here's the speaker and he has a stuffed dolphin. And he usually has something weird going on with his hair. So at the moment, my hair has bits of green and blue in it. Back then, it would have been bleached or it would have been dark black or the one time I did leopard, which was really awful. But something going on with my hair or dreads or something like that. And for me, it was this idea of if people walked away from that talk thinking that something good had happened, they would be more likely to kind of look at God or look at the message instead of thinking, oh, it's attributed to that weird haired guy with a dolphin. And so for me, I was very intentional. Like, how do I break this image? And I don't know how successful it was. But the idea that if people walked away changed, they wouldn't be thinking about me, but hopefully the truth of the message. And so kind of trying to challenge some of the things that, that powerful speakers had in terms of fear, in terms of power, in terms of being untouchable. And the reason that I was led to those things is because when you look at Jesus, who is as a follower of Jesus, that's kind of the central part of my faith. When you see Jesus, this leader who people thought was God or who declared himself as God, like when he came, he was found washing the disciples' feet. So he had a group of 12 men that walked around with him and, and they worked together for three years. And there's this pivotal moment where he gets on his hands and knees and he washes the literal dirt from their feet. 
and demonstrates to them what a true leader looks like. When you look at Jesus, he's the one who calls women and children to the front of the crowds who at the time were seen as less than. Women were seen as less than in a patriarchal society. Jesus invited them to the front of the crowds, which was scandalous, which was controversial. The same with children, seen and not heard. Jesus invites the children forward. And we see this in in an episode of violence when Jesus is arrested and one of his disciples steps forward and chops off the ear of the soldier. And and people watching this scene might think, oh, Peter is a real man. He's stepping forward, power, might, refusing to let Jesus be taken. And in the moment, there's that bravado and hot-headedness. But we just follow his story a little bit and, and we see that Peter denies Jesus when it counts. Jesus is being held and they're questioning him and, and somebody goes to Peter and says, hey, you're one of his disciples. And, and, and Peter says, no, 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 I don't even know him. I'm not with him. And three times Peter denies him. And so there's that moment of impulsiveness where, oh, what is a real man? Slice the ear off. But, but when it really counts, in reality, who Peter was, was somebody that was fearful, that, that didn't want to be killed, that didn't want to be associated if it meant that he could possibly die. And yet when you look closer at Jesus, Jesus is someone who cries when his best friend dies, even though that story is going to conclude with Jesus raising that guy back to life. But there's news that his friend has died. Jesus is not scared to show emotion. Jesus cries over Jerusalem. There's the city that he loves and he's come to to speak truth to it and come to bring freedom and revelation on how to live well and how to love each other and how to create community. And he looks at them not doing these things and getting it wrong and messing it up. And, and Jesus publicly cries. And so for me, when, when, when I try to embody who Jesus was, I feel like that gives me an idea of what it means to be a real man, to not be afraid to show your emotions, to, to be somebody who looks at the marginalized and brings them to the front, to be someone who gets down on hands and knees and serves the community and is not jostling for position or for power or needing to be untouchable or to have that reputation. And just going back to the man problem we have in the world, if you really want to get to the heart of this matter, if you honestly want to understand Talk to a close woman friend of yours. Chat to a colleague at work or a family member and, and realize if you're doing so that there's a cost for them to even have this conversation with you. But, but ask them, what is it like navigating the world as a woman? And this is probably good to do with somebody that you're in relationship with. Don't just go to a random stranger and ask them what it's like navigating the world as a woman. That might come across as a bit creepy. And I don't know if you've seen the latest series on Marvel of She-Hulk, but, but there have been some moments in that where, where her character has spoken to this. And there's one scene where she's just turned into Hulk and she's with her cousin Bruce Banner, who is the Hulk, and he's busy trying to talk to her about managing her anger. Because when Hulk gets angry, he becomes, or when Bruce Banner gets angry, he becomes the Hulk and he can't control it. And, and she looks at him and she says, Bruce, I've been managing my anger Every single day. That's what it means to be a woman navigating the world today. I have to manage it in, I have to manage it in meetings when people are speaking over me, when people are mansplaining things that are my speciality. I have to do it because I will be ridiculed or embarrassed or labeled or I might physically be murdered. And so, so that episode was one that just really touched on this stuff. Like a woman 
might physically be murdered for being some of the things that men are praised for. What is it like navigating the world as a woman when when women go jogging, when a woman is walking down the street and, and men are shouting out things? Why do we never tell our guy friends, call me when you get home safely? The world has a man problem. It is violent. It is out of touch. We are defensive. We are easily triggered. And this is an interesting one because I believe in South Africa that there's a race element as well, where especially during apartheid, men of color were treated as such less than people and often treated as as not even people that often the only place they could maintain some kind of authority or respect or control was at home with their wife and kids. And and that is a whole other part of this. It's nuanced, it's complicated, and not for me to unpack here. But but realize its relevance. I think there's there's a part of that where 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 men's roles were affected, where men's identity was affected in some of the most negative of ways, which led to ways in which things happened after that. And Marcus Aurelius apparently said this, waste no more time arguing about what a good man should be. Be one. When, when we have conversations like this on social media about men, we, we tend to, or men tend to get easily triggered, like not all men, I'm one of the good guys, how dare you kind of rope me in with everyone else or include me in with everyone else. And, and what we need to be doing more is, is not arguing about what a good man is or trying to defend who we are, but just be, be one. If you are the definition of a good man, then you don't have to convince people because the woman in and around your life will feel safer. They will feel that you see them, that you invite them to the microphone, that there's space for them, that they are equal, that they are included that they belong. So, so just be it. Don't, if you need to spend time defending it, then there probably is something there that needs to be sorted out, that needs to be looked at. And so a couple of years ago, I wrote a blog piece that was based on some thoughts that I had and then thoughts that other people kind of added to it on social media. And it ended up as a 40 tips for men series on my blog. You can go find that at breadfish.co.za. But but when we're talking about the how of this whole thing, I just wanted to throw some of these out. And I'm not going to go deeply into them. But if you need to know more, you can connect with me. You can go find the blog piece. You can do some research. Some of them, most of them will be self-explanatory. But just to give us as men some things to think about in terms of how we can be better men. The first one is respect her no. If a woman says no, and this can come in a number of ways, it can be spoken out, it can be physically shown to us, um, a woman in a bar and a guy just assumes that, that she's lonely or that he can come sit next to her or he can buy her a drink, and she gives a no, like immediately when you hear a woman's no, respect it. No means no, it's done. In, in ways that might seem less crucial or important, but I think are super important. I think of my nieces, of, of them being tickled by me or their grandfather. And the moment they say no is the moment that it stops because we have to let them know that their no carries weight, that their no is important. And if we're teaching them as a kid that their no can be ignored because we think we know better or we think we're just having fun or whatever, then those are the lessons that pass on into life. 
Number two, be aware of the threat that your presence may suggest. So I was reminded of a story where I was performing improv in Cape Town and I came out of my show and I was walking to my car and there was a moment when I realized that there was a woman walking in front of me about a meter in front of me and realizing that in my head, I might think I'm one of the safe ones. I'm not a threat to her. The moment she picks up that there's a man a meter behind her walking in the same direction as her, she doesn't know me. She doesn't know if I'm safe or not. I could be a potential threat in a country where the statistics scream out that I could be a threat. And so in that situation, when I meant no harm to her at all, and I knew that she was safe from me, I decided to cross the street. A little thing in a sense. Maybe she didn't even know I was there. Maybe it didn't threaten her at all. But I was able to do something that cost me nothing to remove the possibility of being a threat for her. So, so realize when your presence might be a threat. As you're walking down the road and there's a woman on the same side, again, it's an easy one. Cross the street. Announce with your actions that you're not a threat. Do not call out, it's okay, I'm not a threat, because that probably is not going to help. Number three, speak to the woman in your life and really listen. So if you can find spaces, again, I said, there's a cost to them having to relive their trauma so that we can learn lessons. But but if you've got a close relationship with a woman and you're trying to understand and they don't mind, then then just spending some time saying, hey, I'd really like to understand. What does it mean? And when we start to hear how women have to navigate office spaces or just street spaces or just in their daily lives, just going out. When a woman goes to a car carrying the keys in between her fingers because she's learned that she has to be ready to strike out and defend. Things guys never even have to think about. Number four, deal with the fragility. A guy called Jonathan Cohen put it this way, there is no war on men. And he went on to say, I can't face the men who place campaigning for their own egos over the safety of South African women anymore today. As guys, we have to be less defensive. This thing is so widespread that even if we feel like it isn't us, even if we feel like we're one of the the good guys, there is probably stuff we're doing that's problematic. And it doesn't hurt for us to be reflective and introspective and look at our own mess, but also be aware that people that we know are perpetrating these things. And it's up to us to interrupt and to challenge jokes that are made around the bri, comments that are made in the office, when people are being interrupted, when voices aren't being heard. Number five is do the work. The The knowledge we need to know to be better men is out there. And it's something I've been intentional about in the last number of years. Like Do the work. Read articles. Read books. Chat to people. Figure out the stuff. We know that the world is a violent space and that men are generally perpetrators of this violence. We should all be actively working to make sure that we are less of a problem and to be minimizing the problem in people but also in systems and structures around us. Number six, hold your voice. In a meeting, whenever I'm in a meeting and they open it to a Q&A, the first three men that speak, typically white men, or the first three people that speak. And in those spaces, men are used to being the voice. In meetings, men will generally get the most time. They'll speak over women. They'll cut them off. They'll repeat the same thing a woman said, and it will be taken more seriously. So hold your voice. When you're in a meeting and there's a space, by you not speaking, by you not taking all of the space, maybe in doing that you can create some space for women or be able to hand them the mic in a sense. 
And we've got to be careful with this stuff. It's nuanced. It's tricky. It's complicated. As we are learning, we figure out how to do it better because we could be doing that stuff and it might be seen as an insult to women because it might be seen as patronizing or whatever. So we really have to be careful and we've got to learn how to be better in those spaces. And sometimes we'll get it wrong and that's okay. Number seven, quit with the jokes. Interrupt the jokes. Veto the jokes. Sometimes really horrific things are said and followed up with, just kidding, just joking. There are jokes that are anti-woman. There are jokes that are anti-marriage. There are jokes that are at woman's expense. And, and things that we jest about typically have an element of truth in them. And when we joke, when we make it okay in the things that we say in jest, then those ideas start to take root in our mind and those lead to bigger things. We need, and the jokes make women feel uncomfortable when they're in the space, when they're overhearing, when they are on the side there. We need to be actively interrupting and being able to say, like, that is not okay. We don't have to be violent. We don't have to, to get hectic about it. But often it's just enough to go, hey, that's not okay. And do it again and again and again until that person realizes that kind of thinking, that kind of attitude, that kind of statement is not okay in this space and hopefully is not okay at all. Number eight would be make a mistake, but do something. As I said, we're going to get it wrong. This is something we can learn from. If we adopt a posture of humility and of trying to learn and trying to be better, we will generally get it more right than wrong. And it's okay to get it wrong. It's not okay to get it wrong and then be defensive and then kind of move back into old mindsets. Number nine, look deeply into the mirror. Start with me, Brett Fish Anderson. Where are you the problem? Don't start with the idea that I'm a good guy, that I'm not the problem. The question should be, where am I a problem? Is it some of the things I say? Is it things I don't say? Is it my attitude? Is it my posture? Is it things I've done in relationships with women? Is it when I didn't hear a no or I didn't respond to a no? I'm likely to be getting it wrong somewhere, maybe in a lot of places. I need to constantly be going to the mirror and saying, how can I do this better? Number 10, be an ally. An ally in the conversations around race can be a complicated thing and in the conversation with women it can be complicated because the idea is not to be called an ally. I like it when women refer to me as an ally, but that is not the focus. The focus is that women see me and know intrinsically that I'm somebody that is working hard to be better and to make it better for them. So they need to experience me as an ally much more than I need to be given the label ally. So don't announce yourself as an ally to women. Just be an ally. Be somebody that is fighting for their cause, realizing that they're on the back foot, that they get the worst of it. I'm just going to work through some of the, the rest of these without going like deeply into them. And hopefully these are just thoughts and ideas that you can work on, reflect on, maybe rewind and listen to them again and go look them up on the blog where they are dealt with in much deeper capacity. Be, of a, be aware of a need to step towards. And so just that sense of awareness that when something is going wrong or something is happening in the club and you see something happening at the table next to you and there's a woman who's being uncomfortable, be aware that you can step into that situation even if you don't know anyone involved. Check in with the woman in and around your life. See how they're doing. See how you can be better. See what needs to change. Be mindful of touch. Don't assume that we can hug people. Don't assume that, that our touch is acceptable. And maybe it, it starts with an awkwardness of asking somebody if there's ever a situation where there's going to be a hug or, or like 
arm on the shoulder or anything like that. Hey, is this okay? Like, don't assume. Our touch, men's touch has often been a violent thing. And so we need to be mindful of how our touch might be perceived as violent or uncomfortable or unwanted, even if we are bringing it from a good space. Lose the possessive nouns, this idea of my wife, my girlfriend, my, my girl, all that kind of thing. And, and I know this is one some people don't necessarily agree with, but it's something to think about and reflect on. Like the possessiveness of it has often reflected the possession that exists in relationships. This is a tricky one. Be careful with your compliments because this idea of, but I'm just trying to do something nice. So a woman's walking down the street and I say, hey, beautiful or whatever, and I think I'm doing a good thing. And yet unsolicited commentary from a stranger can often come across as, as creepy, as terrifying, because women have learned that if they don't respond with a big thank you or huge gratitude, that that can lead to violence. And I've heard a couple of stories of that. And so that is one I'm still trying to figure out and understand a bit better because it, it seems counterintuitive, but I was trying to compliment you. Be careful of compliments. And maybe that's a conversation you can have with some of the women in your life. Try and understand why a statement might not come across as a good thing. Be slow to the mic. That goes to what I've spoken about. Stop objectifying women. And we've seen that in advertising, in movies, in so many spaces where women have, have been portrayed and their bodies as if they are objects. And we can fight against that. We can work towards a world that, that doesn't need to be the thing. Stop desensitizing yourself to the word rape. This is a big one for me. That rape is such a horrific, violent act. And yet in, in popular culture, maybe fringe popular culture, there are times and spaces where people have used rape to, to speak about other things. I heard somebody speaking about a test. They got raped in a test or about a certain sports event where their team. And, and we need to understand that the action is so triggering and violent and so secretive often. There are so many more cases than the ones we know about. So you never know who in the vicinity has actually gone through the trauma of that, maybe, maybe multiple times. And then we throwing it out as, as something related to a test or sports game or making a joke about it. Like for me, the word should just never, ever, ever be used except in the context of talking about that violent act. Because it is such a triggering and painful thing to people that we don't know. Say sorry, but also be sorry, which means changing. That, that when you get something wrong, when it's uncomfortable, you mess up, then, then change. Make the change. Don't just say sorry without, without adding your action to it. Redefine the inherited image of what a real man is. And, and that's what we're talking about now. Like we need to start thinking differently about what it means to be a man or a real man. And maybe even some of our phraseology could change. So those, those are just the first 20. And, and there's a couple of others just as I'm skimming through. Cry. It is okay for men to cry. When can we normalize that? That emotions are a good thing. Many of us grew up with the mindset that men had to hide their emotions, that, that we weren't allowed to cry. If you cried, you were wuss or, or worse. And actually, having emotions is such a good thing. It's beautiful. It's healing. 
men are allowed to cry. It's good to cry. Don't dismiss women as being emotional. Ask for help. Don't interrupt women. Here's a good one. Surround yourself with friends who have your best interests at heart. And so if you are in a group of people that is problematic towards women, it is going to be hard for you not to catch that, not to reflect that, not to slip into that. And so surround yourselves with with men, friends that are going to be supportive of creating this new definition, something positive that it means to be a man in this country and in this world. Admit to getting it wrong when you get it wrong. Seek a mentor, be a mentor, and on and on and on, various different ways in which we, and many of them, like it's not hard to find ways that we can work on in ourselves. And just in that list that I've read with another 15 or so to go, there are things in there that no doubt stood out for you. Some you're probably doing already and and you're doing really well at them, but there might be one or two that are, oh, okay, that's something I need to work on or that's something I could be doing better. It's unlikely that all 40 tips are going to be relevant to every single person. But maybe three or five or 11 or 20 are going to be relevant to you. And this is a list we can keep going back to. And there are going to be ones that aren't on this list. But, but there are places and spaces where we can find what we need to start working on this definition of, of what it means to be a real man and how that can be a positive thing for men, for women, for children, for society. As I, was, as I was planning to do this podcast, I actually put something out on the Twitter and asked women, like, what, what would you want to say to men? And just three of the comments that I got, um, one was from Evelyn who said, it's not all about you guys. And then Ina Stratum said, I love you. Please don't make derogatory remarks about women or anyone for that matter. Your negative feelings are important Allow yourself to feel them and explore the pain, wounds, and insecurities that causes them. Work towards healing. And those little biting jokes about women and or marriage will not serve your children well. That is if you want them to have happy, healthy relationships. And then this comment from Lexi really jumped out at me. She said, introspect, engage with your feelings and go to therapy Stop taking your trauma out on others. Stop taking your trauma out on others. I've spoken a little bit about this program that Heartlines, who I work with, are doing that is looking at fatherhood. And we're talking about present, active men in the lives of children. And so much of that stuff spills out into what we're talking about in terms of men in general. And so September and October on SABC2, we're going to be seeing these, these movies around Father's Matter. But the heart of it is, is men like needing to be decent men in various different situations. And so just as I wrap up, two other things come to mind. And, and I know that, that these are going to be received controversially by different people because I know there are people that love these things. But for me, these two are deeply problematic. The one is bachelor parties. I don't even know if that's a thing anymore. Um, I feel like a few weeks ago, for the first time in years, maybe because of pandemic, I saw some guys at a traffic light with signs and wearing nappies and trying to collect money and stuff. But for me, bachelor parties in the traditional sense – 
not not even going to to kind of bachelor parties I haven't been to where there's strippers and and things like that. Let's not even go there. But in the traditional sense of of dressing a guy up in embarrassing costume and taking him out in public and embarrassing him, possibly hurting him with paintball guns or blow darts or rugby balls being thrown at him or whatever it is. Like like I never understood that kind of concept. Like I'm about to get married. My best friends are going to embarrass me, humiliate me, physically hurt me, treat me like a moron. And that's going to be our final celebration act before we go into this beautiful commitment of marriage. And so for me, before I got married, I went away on a weekend with a couple of friends. And in fact, of all the bachelor parties that I've been to, I only ever went to one that was the kind that I'm super against and hated it where a guy was literally attached to a ball and chain, which again is one of those jokes, one of those those comments that we make that is inverted commas, just a joke, but actually speaks to realities of what we start believing about when we step into that relationship. But for me, it was a weekend spent with friends. There were board games, there were drinks, there were jokes, there were being out in nature, there was affirmation. So there was a chance for some of my closest friends to speak life into me, to tell me why they loved me, to tell me what they hoped for me, to pray for me, to pray for our marriage. And and I've heard of a number of, of bachelor parties like that. And that is what I can get behind. Like what about us getting together and celebrating and lifting up and encouraging and building up for a person who's about to go into a difficult journey. Marriage is a tough thing. And and imagine if we could reinvent some of the things that we do that just kind of pull that apart. So bachelor parties in the negative sense I don't get. But, but guys connecting with mates that love them and will speak life and truth to them is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And then the second one is roasting like these comedy roasts. And I realize that this happens with men and women, but it's man energy where you, you have a number of comedians who just speak some of the most despicable, disgusting, awful things in the name of jokes. And they basically just insult each other. And I, I posted something like this on the Twitter recently and found out I wasn't alone in, in hating them. I know there are lots of people that love them. I can't watch them. I've only watched little bits here and then, but I, I just literally can't take them. This idea that we are going to spend some time mocking, hurting, embarrassing, ridiculing, like we need to be better than that. And we look at those kind of things as norms in society and we wonder why we have a violence problem. We wonder why when we normalize things in our jokes and in our humor and in our conversations that people end up actually going and acting the stuff out. And you'll suddenly go, oh, Brett, no one's going to do that just because they told a joke. People are doing that. And, and the jokes are there and present in society. We haven't even looked at, at the violence in our entertainment and things like that. But, but one thing we will hopefully agree on, whether we agree on the causes, is that, that we live in a messed up world. And women and children are bearing the brunt of that. Something is wrong. And so we have to do something di- differently. So what is, what is a real man? And just a few things that came to mind when I thought of the kind of real man definition I can get behind. It's somebody who listens. It's somebody who loves and that kind of serving love that we spoke about. It's somebody who interrupts violence. 
the hashtag not on our watch where somebody makes a commitment that there's not going to be violence to women or violence spoken about women that happens in front of them that they will not interrupt in some way. A real man is someone who creates space, is somebody who interrogates the systems and structures that permeate the inequality. Now, if... Now, if I do an honest reflection on, on who is likely listening to this podcast episode, it is probably not going to be the super problematic men. Like, this is not something that they would sit and listen to. And so, for the most part, there's probably a number of women who are listening. And the men that are listening are going to be, for the most part, people that are trying to do this stuff, that are trying to get it right. And so, the question is, how do we reach some of the men that need to hear this even a little bit more. We all need to hear this. We all need to be doing the work. But, but if they're not going to be listening to this podcast, if they're not going to be listening to the messages, to the testimonies of women, to, to movies that are out there and things like that, then how do we, who are listening, who are trying to get it, who are doing the work, how do we actually connect with them and how do we make a difference? And it has to start where we have influence, whether it's in our workspaces, whether it's in our friends around the bride, whether it's in our sports teams. We have to choose those spaces firstly to make sure the work is being done, to start conversations on this stuff, to make it okay for men to have conversations about this stuff. Being a good man is something you do, not something you are. And so I end up at the end of each day with, with a prayer or a thought that goes something like this. Let me try today to be a better man than I was yesterday. Gentleness, humility, kindness, generosity, empathy, justice, equality, equity, inclusion, love. But the kind of love that I spoke about in episode 7 of season 1. Blessed are the real men, for their tears will bathe the nations. Let's, let's choose to do the work that needs to be done because the statistics that we started this episode out with are insane. They are a madness. They are disgusting. They are just so hard to look at and it is not okay. We need to do better. We need to do differently. It starts with us. Let's go and be better real men.